1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Dr. Sarah Abel, who is the author of the book, Permanent Markers, Race, Ancestry, and the Body After the Genome, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Dr. Abel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. And I can't wait to talk about your book, Permanent Markers, which examines the racial politics of DNA testing. And so I wanted to just begin with a question we normally start with, which is how did you come to write this book? And can you tell us about yourself, um, anything about your background and what sparked your interest in genetic testing and race?
0: Sure. So um, the book's based on my PhD research, um, which I started uh, 10 years ago now. Um, and it was part of an interdisciplinary and international research network called Eurotest, um, which received funding from the European Commission. Um, and this network was uh, The idea was to bring together geneticists, bioinformaticians, archaeologists, historians, and anthropologists um, to look at the histories and legacies of the transatlantic uh, transatlantic trade and enslaved Africans at the um, intersections of the biological and social sciences. Um, And while various of the sub projects were about using genetic methods directly to shed light on the population history set in motion by the transatlantic trade and slavery as an institution, The project I ended up taking on was um, about looking at those genetic methods and tools from a social perspective, so how they were being used to think about issues of race and identity, what were the ethics and epistemological limitations of those practices. Um, And with regards to my own background, um, just before uh, I began that PhD, I'd been doing a a master's project in in Latin American studies, Um, I was uh, doing a dissertation on the impacts of the Haitian revolution on, on forms of black identification in 19th century Cuba and I was uh, kind of enjoying doing this historical approach but when I'd actually gone to Cuba um, I couldn't get access to the archives and I spent a lot of time just just talking to people and realised I, I really enjoyed um that that more kind of more of an interview more of a contemporary um ethnographic approach um so when i saw the the call for applications for the Eurotest project um that was actually probably the first time one of the first times i'd come across the idea of genetic testing it's not something that i Knew a lot about, um, and I was really intrigued on the one hand by the idea that these tools were being used to explore um, the continuing impacts of slavery and colonization on uh, on notions of race and kinship today, um, and. At the same time as someone who had been trained in the constructivist social science tradition, um, this idea of using genetics to reconstruct racial and ethnic identities in this way um, seemed kind of sacrilegious. <laughs> I was also really interested in um, in mounting a critique of these technologies, um, even if. Actually, over the course of doing the research, my ideas about the relationship between identity and genetics, or more broadly, identity in the body, changed quite drastically. Um, And I just want to mention as well that um, while I was doing the research uh, for my PhD and for the book um, after the PhD, um, quite a lot of the people I Interviewed or came across, assumed that I was a genealogist myself and that that was how I'd come to the topic. And as a matter of fact, I had very little personal interest in family history research. And although I ended up taking several DNA tests over the course of the the project um, as a a way of understanding how they worked and and having a kind of immersive experience of the phenomenon, um, I initially found it quite difficult, I have to admit, to un- understand the excitement and the passion that genealogists and DNA test takers, particularly in, in the United States, um, that they expressed about the possibility of uncovering new information about their family histories. Um, but over the course of the research, I began to see that this indifference that I felt about my family history was in part symptomatic of my own racial position. Um, so that is, as i mean. I would say, an unambiguously white person pretty much anywhere I go. Um, and in my native country, the UK, um, I grew up with the privilege of never being challenged or questioned on my ancestry or national uh, belonging. Um, so that was that was one thing um, that I think was kind of behind that, um, that sort of ambivalence about family history from my own experience. And the other thing was that when I actually began to question my family about our genealogy, I found that what initially seemed to be indifference in the sense that I got the impression that we don't talk about our family or our ancestors because they just weren't very interesting people. Um, I realized um, after a while that this was actually a strategy for covering up painful and shameful family secrets. And I mentioned this because these turned out to be key insights into how processes of racialization create not only diverse, effective relationships to ancestry and genealogy, but also different material and structural possibilities for, for people to access, to access those, those histories.
1: Yeah, that was really interesting. And thank you for situating, situating yourself, uh, your positionality in that way. And that's also interesting that you got to kind of try out these different methods for, like archival research versus ethnographic research and make that choice to kind of see what you're getting yourself into. Uh, I would have, I would have loved that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so great. So, um, you, so your, your book is looking at these uh, DNA ancestry tests and as you, as you just said, and these tests are becoming relatively ubiquitous, at least in the United States, as you, um, as you also indicated. And I just had a friend who I saw in the summer, and he showed me his genetic ancestry tests and, you know, showed me the different percentages. And of course, in the United States, we'd also be familiar with these various commercials that are trying to sell us uh, these ancestry tests to, to take them. And so um, they appear to hold the key to our identities in that they tell us you know, what percentage we are of these different regional backgrounds. And so I was wondering, how are you intervening in our understanding of these genetic tests? And what are you arguing about the social and racial dynamics of these tests?
0: Right. So in In the book, I, I look at the tests from various different angles. Uh, the The kind of first part of the book um, looks at how they're portrayed in culture, in particular in documentaries or um or the special reportage uh, reportages. <laughs> I'm not sure which is the right one. Um, and uh, so looking at how they're kind of presented, how these discourses are presented to the um, to the public. Um, then I look at them uh, more from the, the kind of scientific point of view. So I look into the scientific construction of some of the different uh, DNA ancestry products that are available on the genealogy market, and in particular, um, I look at. I have a chapter that's devoted to the, as they're called, the genetic ethnicity uh, tests that are currently sold by Ancestry.com, which is the currently the, the global forerunner. Um, in terms of the amount of sales of, of DNA ancestry tests. And but that product's also quite similar to ones that are offered by 23andMe, My Heritage, and other other big players. Um and one of the things that I noticed um when uh, I was looking at the advertisements for these products and and the way that they're they're often presented in popular culture is that they companies tend to present genetic knowledge, um, as you say, as is, is indisputable and also universally true. That's to say that there's this idea that a test will supposedly work as well for someone in Brazil, as in the United States, as in Korea, as in Kenya, and so on. Um, but one of the key points that I make in the book is that the tests um, are actually constructed with particular publics in mind. And that's usually inhabitants of the United States, um, who were the Again, the the global leaders in in consumers of um, of uh, of genetic tests, um, and in particular within the United States, they're aimed kind of first at white U.S. Americans, um, and then also African Americans, and and uh, I think uh, to some extent Latino Americans. Um, so they're aimed at these publics, and they're configured in a way that will reflect the demographic histories of these specific populations in a in a fairly kind of reasonable way Um, but as a result the test won't hold up as well for someone who lives in brazil or korea or kenya for example because the test simply isn't calibrated to reflect these populations histories Um, i mean that is to say you will you may get a result that seems sort of okay but you might not get the same amount of resolution on the result or it may not be as accurate because the um the reference populations that are used aren't necessarily calibrated for 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 populations um, in in places that aren't broadly the United States and maybe Europe um, so that's thinking about how the tests are set up scientifically and how they're marketed um, but another issue is the conceptual tools that we um, we all bring in in order to interpret the test results and the third part of my my book um, looks particularly how. Uh, members of the public are engaging with these these tests and the readings that they they bring to them how they um understand the results in relation to what they already know about their ancestry um and um in the book i consider two um contexts the united states and brazil and what this allows me to do is to show that even if two people say one brazilian and one u.s american uh were to receive um identical test results, they would likely have quite different interpretations of what they meant in terms of the pers- of each person's racial identity. And this is because we all bring culturally specific scripts to our readings of genetic data. Um, so the most available readings that we bring are usually to do with the way race and ethnicity are framed within national identity discourses. In Brazil, for example, this relates to discourses of mechissaging, uh, racial mixture. And in the U.S., Um, it's usually in reference to the one drop uh, rule, Um, but people can also bring multiple other cultural and racial scripts to bear on their DNA ancestry data. And this kind of results in a variety of readings, um, which are sometimes even in conflict with one, one another. Um, and in the book, I follow other researchers like Alondra Nelson, Nadia Abu El-Hajj and Wendy Roth, among others, um, in exploring how the tests are understood and mobilized by Uh, members of the public in relation to not only diverse societal discourses about race, but also in relation to the different ways we individually are racialized in society, for example, based on how other people identify us relating to, for example, our skin color or other um, kind of physical markers that are racialized. Um, Also in relation to our prior knowledge of our family histories, our sense of cultural affinity and uh, other things. Um, so in particular in the book, I focus in on the subtle choices that test takers make in terms of assimilating some aspects of their results and setting aside or rejecting others um, to try to show how test takers make assessments about how valid or accurate their DNA data are rather than simply accepting them wholesale.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. So thank you for that. Um, and so I'm going to pick up where you mentioned during the the past um, answer, you said you you compare genetic ancestry testing in the United States and Brazil. And so I wondered why you pick these uh, two countries particularly and, you know, what made them, you know, such fertile ground for your study?
0: Well, for centuries, the United States and Brazil have been constructed uh, both in international discourse and in their own national discourses as essentially racial opposites. So this goes back, um, to the 19th century and even beyond. But um, in the 19th century, during the the rise of international eugenics movements, the United States was heavily invested in protecting the so-called purity of its white populations and did this by eradicating or segregating as far as possible um, its native and black populations. And it became admired um, by Eurocentric governments around the world for, for those efforts. Um, Brazil, on the other hand, was regarded internationally as as somewhat um, a racially backwards country because of its history of what's, what was seen as unbridled racial mixture since um, colonization. Um, but around the mid twentieth century, against the backdrop of the Second World War, um, Brazil managed to successfully rebrand itself um, as a country that was free of racism, um, and that w- they they kind of. Um, posited this as as being due to the way that the country had embraced racial and cultural mixture as the core of its national identity and on the other hand the United States's uh, program of of Jim Crow segregation was regarded internationally as a failure and ever since then the U.S. has been perceived as a country with racial problems Um, and one of the Assumptions that you often hear when people are talking about genetics and genetic testing is the idea that uh, DNA testing will help people be less racist because it shows how mixed we are. Um, And this common sense idea that mixedness is kind of antithetical to racism has been fundamentally strengthened over the years by this very dichotomous image of mixed race Brazil on the one hand um, as the country of racial democracy and the segregated United States on the other as this country of acute racial problems and neuroses. But having said that, um, like other Latin American countries in recent decades, Brazil has been forced to come to terms with the fact that this dearly held notion of mixture has in fact Uh, work to pull a veil over the deep-rooted and systemic forms of racism that have produced and perpetuated inequalities between the country's white and non-white populations. So I think that, first of all, the, the case of Brazil has some really important lessons to show us about why simply believing that we're racially or genetically mixed really isn't sufficient to drive a meaningful anti-racist agenda. And I think this is an important critique of genetic claims to anti-racism that really needs to be more widely understood. And another thing that I hope to achieve in the book was to place into dialogue the practices and experiences of African-Americans in the US and Afro-Brazilians who are seeking to recover aspects of their family histories um, linked to slavery as a way of seeking racial justice. Um, so one of the things that mestizagem um, or mixed race discourses in Brazil have done is to encourage inv- individuals to selectively forget aspects of their family histories, and in particular. Black histories, um, as a way of trying to racially whiten themselves and and their descendants as a way of kind of uh, improving their position in society. And this means that traditional genealogy hasn't usually been seen as Afro-Brazilians as a viable route to recovering aspects of their ancestry or to shedding light on how slavery affected their their family histories and how that violence has echoed echoed through the, the generations. Um, But in the United States, on the other hand, black genealogists have been able to use genealogy very fruitfully, not only to begin to recover the identities and stories of their enslaved ancestors, um, but also to challenge the national discourses that claim that racial mixing only occurred rarely, if ever, under slavery. Um, So drawing on these different experiences, I try to suggest how Um, careful interpretation of um, genetic and genealogical and other types of historical research, if if it's done with a critical lens, um, could be used to challenge dominant discourses about race and racism and national identity, and also to pursue forms of epistemic justice for the descendants of the enslaved.
1: Great. Thank you. And you in the book, you really do go into such um, like historical background about the two countries and and why you chose them. And in particular, I learned in in your discussion about racial mixture in Brazil. I I also do research in Brazil, but I was not aware of the um, of the origin of the term miscegenation and that it came from, that it was a pseudoscientific term that came from the United States during uh, during the Civil War <laughs> to, to spread alarm among white liberals about the impacts of racial blending. So I had no idea about that. So thank you for that, as well as much of the other insights that you bring to bear uh, on these you know histories and understandings of mixture between the two countries. Um, And so as you mentioned, uh, too, you have this like kind of three pronged approach in the book where you look at representations of this testing, the perspectives of the scientists and the perspectives of those people who take the tests. And so I wondered from the perspective of the of the scientists, um, from their point of view, they seem to be very careful about how they presented the genetic findings and they seem to want to avoid the political or ethnocentric use of of such findings of these ancestry tests, and so I wondered what what were the scientists so concerned about, and how did they navigate this conundrum of the of the I guess political landscape in which these tests were being taken up?
0: Yeah. So. Um, oh should distinguish uh, immediately between um the research scientists who who i think are the, the the group that you're particularly referring to um and on the other hand there are um research scientists who have kind of crossed over into um the world of um commercial dna ancestry testing who um maybe didn't have the same concerns or, or they they felt that um that Uh, being able to get out these these data to members of the public was was you know went beyond any any of these more kind of ethical concerns but so among the research scientists I interviewed for the book almost everyone I spoke to was very critical of of commercial DNA testing I'd often hear it described as junk science as just you know nonsense as charlatanism um, and particularly Uh, The people I interviewed were disturbed by the way that companies encourage members of the public to construct or to reconfigure their ethnic and racial identities based on genetic information. Um, Part of the problem that many geneticists, or, or I should probably say many white geneticists in particular, Um, encounter is is that they're very invested in the idea that um, genetics can offer a singularly privileged and objective viewpoint on issues about origins, ancestry and diversity. And this is supposed to be a vision that exists outside of political arguments, individual desires or, or market dynamics of course, from a social science perspective, this is just nonsense. Um, Of course, geneticists bring their own desires, their own conceptual frameworks, their own politics and biases to their work, just like anyone else. Um, But this belief is also what gives genetics its reputation for being such an incisive tool against racist ideologies. So to abandon that belief is also to cast doubt upon the ability of genetics to kind of Cure the world of, of racist ideology. So many of the, um, the research geneticists I interviewed, particularly in, in Brazil, um, were nervous about uh, any sort of public use of genetic data that could contribute to the construction of collective identities. But they weren't good at distinguishing between the power dynamics at play in identity movements. For example, differentiating between attempts at the reconstruction of identities among groups who have suffered cultural trauma like slavery and enforced displacement on the one hand and on the other the use of genetic data to reinforce uh, white nationalist forms of identity for example. Um, and My view on this is that geneticists really do need to be more politically and racially literate. They need to perceive and understand the power dynamics at play behind identity claims and they need to take a more robust stance on anticipating and refuting uh, racist and oppressive uses of the data that they themselves are producing and disseminating even if they see this as very different from what um dna ancestry companies are doing there are in my view are essential continuities in the way the the data are produced and the conceptual frameworks that are, that are being used but i should say that the Attitudes I I came across among um, black geneticists were somewhat different, Um, so they often felt that genetics uh, did have something to contribute in terms of rejecting the biological basis of race and giving a more um, expansive account of, of human diversity. Some of them also thought that genetics could shed light on African and African-American population histories and origins in the context of the history of slavery. And they believed this information should be made available to the public. So while they were um, invested in deconstructing concepts such as race and ethnicity, um, and they wanted to frame their data in, in ways that would resist the geneticization of these identities, they also wanted to present the data in a way that they could be used genealogically to help shed light on the identities of the enslaved a- ancestors of African descendant root see- seekers.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. And so picking up on this idea of, uh, of genealogy, I guess, um, I was going to... You know, bring this up. Where, as I was reading your book, it made me think about this time when I spoke with a genealogist. And I know you said that you were you would be constantly mistaken, you know, for a genealogist, and you're, um, you know, you're not one. Um, this person who I talked with, she that was her her job. She tended to to help people to find their, you know, their family family tree, if you will. And so I remember her saying that. African-Americans and Jewish people were generally the hardest for her to trace um, due to, I think, the transatlantic slave trade and um, the Holocaust, I think, for Jewish people. Um, And so those, you know, those events made it difficult to trace people back to a certain point. Um, And and then at a certain point, everything, it, it was almost impossible to get beyond it. And so, um, in chapter three in your book, you talk about you know the instability of these tests and how sometimes like white people could align their genealogy information with the test findings, but you know African Americans could not. And so I wondered um, how how did this differential access to genealogy impact the use and experience of the genetic testing?
0: Right. Well, so what I talk about in part of that chapter is um, how uh, genealogists in particular um, and and in particular um, white and Euro descendant genealogists have kind of contributed to the functioning of um, commercial DNA ancestry tests because they they kind of test out the results by checking them against their own pedigrees and, and genealogies, uh, genealogies and they'll often send feedback to the, the company if they feel like the um, ancestry estimates are, are getting it wrong basically, um, whereas this is not always possible for um, for people of uh, African descent and I came across um, various different strategies that people use to deal with this um, this kind of epistemic instability of the tests. So in the United States, there is a large network of African American genealogists who've built up an incredible amount of expertise in in terms of conducting genealogical research in the context where much of the written archive is either incomplete or inaccessible, or it's of questionable reliability, because the documents were written by slaveholders and, and not Um, enslaved individuals themselves. Um, So if you were to go and take a look at the the blogs of prominent African American genealogists, of which there are many online, um, you'll probably find a fairly standard set of guidelines that they suggest following if you want to get into family history research. Um, So almost all experts will emphasize the importance of starting in the present where the kind of facts are more um, stable you know you have you can ask people interview people and and start working backwards in time they will suggest using genetic data to triangulate other sources about the past such as oral history and ri- written documentation but they will generally not suggest that you for example start t- with a dna test and then try and uh, do your research in such a way as to work out uh you know uh work out from the DNA data backwards. They will not suggest you taking the, the DNA test as an authority in itself, but rather it's something that should complement other, other sources of, um, of research. Having said that, for individuals who want to trace their ancestry to their family origins in in Africa, so beyond slavery, um, it then becomes much more difficult to find oral or written sources to support their genealogy. And in these instances, DNA test results often take on a a much greater weight. Um, So something that often happens is that someone will get a DNA test result, and then they'll perhaps go to the the country, um, one of the countries that's... um, that shows up in their their DNA uh, matches and they will uh, perhaps see people who look like them or they'll notice um, patterns or products that are reminiscent of things that they always use, they they remember their grandmother using, for example. And these kind of coincidences are often experienced as a confirmation of the validity of the the DNA match. Um, And this is kind of the, the level of, of traces are, are being used, these disparate traces to try and and get a confirmation of the, of the DNA match. But at the same time, I was um, often struck while I was doing my interviews um, by the amount of times that test takers would ask for my personal opinion, I guess as an expert, um, on the validity of the result. I mean, I can't offer that opinion <laughs> because I'm not a geneticist, but also um, I think that there's uh, the... The DNA result is necessarily contingent, but this is this feeling that um, an absolute certainty about about one's origins was was always just out of reach, was definitely something that um, that I noticed among a lot of the African American um, root seekers that I spoke to, um, and in a sense, I guess you could argue that that's you know, can you ever have certainty about the past, um, you know, particularly when you're talking about something as fluid and multifaceted as identity. But on the other hand, I understand this desire for certainty, because it's rooted in the violence of the erasure of the identities of the enslaved. So it's a desire for a reparation of, of what was taken. Um, and in Brazil, the situation is is likely to be even even more tenuous because um, in Brazil, there's not the same infrastructure uh, as in the United States for people to be able to just uh, go online or pop down to their local family history center and access their genealogical documents. Um, the Brazilian government actually took the decision to burn uh, its fiscal documents relating to slavery at the time of abolition as a, as a way of um, making sure that there wouldn't be um, uh, Claims against them by um, by slaveholders, um, so their kind of official line has been just erase and forget, um, and for that reason, traditional ge- genealogy really isn't seen as an option for um, Afro Brazilians to trace their African ancestry. Although there have been a, a couple of interesting projects um, in recent years that that try to try to go in that direction, um, but as a result, uh, in Brazil where commercial DNA testing has only really started to take off in the past five years or so. I have tended to see um, rather an overconfidence in the ability of DNA tests to help recover an, an, an ancestral African identity. And this is perhaps similar to what happened to the, in the United States when DNA ancestry tests first became available about 20 years ago. There was a huge amount of initial enthusiasm um, among um, some African American circles, but this gradually became tempered as people became aware of the methodological and epistemic limitations of the tests.
1: Yeah, and I wanted to um, then shift the question to how people um, responded to the test, or how, and particularly how your Brazilian respondents interpreted their ancestry results. And I asked this because you were doing the research during. And, and well, you were doing the research during a considerable shift um, in Brazil around racial categories, and argue, arguably these shifts are still taking place a- in that, and I think you mentioned this too, I- ideologies of, of race in Brazil found that everyone um, was, was of mixed race, and these are shifting now to the embrace of more stable racial categories. And of course, this is being propelled by affirmative action policies and policies to teach black history and culture in Brazil. And you have the black movement who's also advocating for, you know, black, black consciousness. Um, So it's a dynamic, you know, setting. And so into this situation comes these genetic ancestry testing. Um, And so I wondered how your respondents in Brazil made sense of the findings that they received.
0: Yeah, I mean, definitely, as you say, I was doing my research, um, my fieldwork in Brazil in 2012, shortly after the national quotas law was ratified. And although there was a sense of distinct fatigue around the the topic of um, affirmative action, and and so on, it was definitely a really interesting time to be um, asking questions about about race and identity. Um, And um, at this time, there wasn't a, a genetic ancestry testing market in Brazil as such, although there was uh, in the U.S. at this point. Um, and the idea of DNA testing wasn't really that well known to the, the general public. Um, so what I did for my research was to approach um, uh uh, an international genetic uh, study called Candela, which had uh, recruited volunteers from various different countries, including Brazil and Latin America, and it was interested in understanding the links between genotype and, and phenotype in uh, mixed uh, Latin American populations. So um, they uh, gave me access to um, to some of the participants who'd who'd taken part, and um, in general. Uh, volunteers who took part in the study were offered a fairly basic um, admixture admixture test as a kind of reward for taking part in the research. So what I did was to interview um, a subset of, of these volunteers after they'd received their ancestry res- results. And I was interested in seeing how those DNA results compared to their uh, beliefs and expectations about their ancestry. And um, one thing I just want to mention is that whereas in the US around the same time, uh, we were starting to see the appearance of these fine scale uh, DNA ancestry tests that would break down your ancestry into different um, kind of uh, intracontinental countries or regions. Um, The Candela test results in Brazil uh, related to just three continental groups. uh, That's uh, African, European and Amerindian. Um, And this is partly due to um, economic concerns because it wasn't cost effective for the project to give out very fine scale DNA tests. But it was also because it reflected what the researchers believed were the basic components of Latin American ancestry. So there's already this kind of constraint on the possible results that this test could uh, give to the volunteers. Um, So almost all of the volunteers in Brazil that I interviewed had the expectation that they would be mixed. And that was just seen as common sense as being Brazilian. Um, But they were particularly interested in seeing how much of each continental ancestry they had. And this very quickly became translated into racial terms. In other words, how black or white uh, usually a test taker was. And one of the interesting things that I observed was that although Brazil it was supposedly renowned for having um, a very fluid and flexible schema of racial identities, which might lead you to think that um, as people are receiving this DNA information, they might change their racial identification. Um, in fact, I found this was very rare. Um, in fact, most Brazilians had very um, complex and multifaceted conception of their identity um so they knew before taking the test that ancestry and and color uh, which is the kind of um term for um for race based on physical appearance that is Uh, very ubiquitous in in Brazil, they knew that ancestry and color were not the same thing, because many people come from families where siblings and parents and children look very different. This is seen as the notorious effect of mestizagem. It's it's seen as mixing up racialized physical characteristics in this crazy or incomprehensible way. So that formed part of their common sense. Um, Most of them appreciated that in their daily lives, Um, It wasn't ancestry, but rather color or physical appearance that was the most important factor in how they were perceived racially. So they understood their identity as having various components that weren't necessarily um, concordant. So on the one hand, how you look um, on the other, your family background, your personal sense of cultural or political affiliation. And now, in addition to that, you could also look at your DNA ancestry results Um, and. It's worth saying that the DNA ancestry results didn't always seem to align with what people thought they knew about their family and their family ancestry, um, which was usually based on the color or racialized appearance of their relatives. Um, so people would look at their results and say, oh, that's so weird, because I, I have a an ancestor that we all call like we all know is the grandmother who was uh, like an Indian from the from the forest um, because she had straight black hair Um, and yet there's not very much um, indigenous ancestry in my in my results so people would kind of puzzle over that um, kind of calculus of how color corresponded or didn't correspond to genetic ancestry and although I found that the brazilians i interviewed had quite a stable sense of racial identity and um, it's worth mentioning that a few of the people i interviewed had the expectation when they took the dna test um, that the results might be useful if they wanted to apply for affirmative action and this was often people who described themselves as uh pardo which is a kind of mixed or sort of intermediate and um, category in in brazil and most of the time they were disappointed um so they were perhaps clear Hoping for a clear majority of African or Amerindian ancestry, um, but usually what they got was a slight majority of European ancestry, which they either felt didn't really clarify their racial identity, or, or it wouldn't be useful for backing up quota's application. Um, and um, I just want to also mention that, whereas in the United States, DNA testing has been quite enthusiastically taken up by some African-American communities as a way of tracing their African ancestry. In Brazil, this type of usage has only begun to happen in the past few years, really, um, and has been impulsed by the anti-racist movements of the summer of, of um, 2020. Um, so this is after I finished writing the book. Um But there were some cases of newspaper and magazine reports that used DNA testing in the early 2000s in the context of the debates around um, affirmative action. Um, And they used uh, DNA to ostensibly find something out about the African ancestry, for example, of um, a group of famous Afro-Brazilians. But what tended to happen is, was that these reports um, ended up reinforcing the claim that Afro-Brazilians are just as mixed as anyone else. And since this discourse has been used time and time again to try and veil the effects of racism upon Black Brazilians or to deny the need for compensatory public Policies. At the time I was doing my fieldwork in 2012, most of the Afro Brazilian activi- activists that I interviewed were actually very wary of engaging with DNA testing as they'd seen that the results could very easily be used politically against them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is fascinating. So I, I, my next question is about your research and the processes that you use to gather data. And I wondered, in particular, how you familiarized yourself with the terms of scientists. And, and I asked this in the context of how we're often you know, talking, we talk about learning a field language as anthropologists, like such as you know, the Portuguese language, but it also seemed like you had to learn another one of your languages was like a scientific language. And you use, you know, different scientific terms like haplotypes and, and things like that. Um, and so I wondered, was it challenging to enter into this world of scientists? And, you know, is there anything else you found particularly interesting or challenging about doing the research for this project?
0: Yeah, um, definitely Learning about the genetic concepts um, that I deal with in the book was quite an undertaking. It wasn't um, close to anything I'd I'd studied in a long time, probably not since high school. Um, So I was keen to try and at least understand the principles of population genetic um, theory um, which necessarily meant understanding the technical terms to do with the process of DNA ancestry testing before I started out on my fieldwork, um, partly because I felt that this would allow me to be taken more seriously by the geneticists I interviewed because there was already quite a lot of... Um, I was perceiving a lot of animosity um, towards social scientists from geneticists that already been a number of critiques published of genetic ancestry testing by social scientists and the geneticists um, that I met and knew were often a bit dismissive of this like they felt like the social scientists hadn't really done the work or they perhaps didn't really understand what they were talking about um, but one of the things that really helped uh, in my process was being part of the Eurotest uh, network that I did my PhD through, um, because I had a lot of opportunities to discuss and debate those concepts in depth with my um, geneticist colleagues and friends. And I actually published an article um, with, with a colleague um, that was... Uh, Kind of alongside writing my PhD thesis, and it was a very, um, very challenging exercise, just trying to establish um, uh, a common um, vocabulary between um, someone coming from a social science background and, and uh, my colleague uh, who's coming from a geneticist background. Um, But at a certain point in the project, um, I remember that my PhD supervisors began to uh, feel that there was a risk of me um, going native (laughs) Uh, and uh, they started to warn me that I needed to pay less attention to to the genetics and and, really take more of a um, a kind of distant social science uh, stance on on the uh, phenomenon. So I found it was quite difficult to reconcile the desire, the desires of my social scientist advisors uh, with those of my geneticist colleagues uh, with regards to the critique that my thesis ought to make regarding genetics and its relationship to issues of race and identity. So the geneticists um, wanted me to critique the DNA ancestry testing industry, but they were less receptive to criticisms of mainstream population genetics, even though I found there to be a fundamental continuity between the two and on the other hand the social scientists wanted the project to underline the social constructedness of race and to deconstruct the legitimacy of genetic data as a source of identity knowledge Um, but this was also a problem because it it um kind of led me to feel like i was um delegitimizing the practices of the many people that are Using genetic data to try and reconstruct their their personal histories, and to um, you know, as part of these uh, racial justice projects. So I didn't that didn't sit comfortably with me either. Um, so in the end, for the book, I uh, I engaged with uh, biocultural theories that understand race instead as being constructed using elements encompassing both the socio- social and the biological, um, and. I think this is a useful framework because not only it allows us to take seriously the way that DNA data are being used to negotiate and construct racial and ethnic identities today, but it accounts for the way that racial boundaries have always been constructed through the management of bodies, and in particularly uh, the management of sex and reproduction in the context of slavery and coloni- colonization.
1: That's interesting. It's like the perils of, um, of interdisciplinarity and... The different goals of the different people, and all of these, all of our trainings, and you know the kinds of questions that we think we're supposed to be answering. Um, what happens when those worlds come together and collide, and how do we reconcile them? Um, so that's a, yeah, interesting lesson in that. And then what I can also see that I guess in the book as well, which I'm sure readers will like to to see, is you know how do you bring this social science social science View to you know to the sciences as well and bring those two together. Um, so this question this is interesting because you just said that you took this approach that race is social and biological and then you just kind of describe that. So I guess maybe this will help me think about like my next question and and so I'm just interested in what in your response to it because in in thinking about this genetic genetic ancestry testing. Um, I kept thinking about one of the difficult challenges of teaching about race, um, which is th- to teach the idea that race is a social construct. Um, and that becomes very difficult, I-, I find, for um students to to grasp, right? And and as anthropologists, you know, we we were always putting forward this idea, you know, race is a social construct. Yet um in in the book, um, you had people, um, who were generally not anthropologists, um, not, you know, who, who were trying to undo race with scientific ancestry. And so you had, you came across many people who would say, Oh, these genetic ancestry tests can help us undo kind of the, like the perils of, of race of, um, like racial inequality and, and racism. And, and so, but but this idea is kind of contradictory because it doesn't necessarily undermine the idea that that race is biological, but rather, you know, reinforces this idea of, of race as biological, which is, again, is something we're usually trying to, to deconstruct. Um, so I just found this tension, I guess, throughout the book. And I was wondering then, like, just what you thought about this idea of, you know, of how race is being talked about in all of these different ways.
0: Yeah. First of all, I want to be super clear that um, I, I uh, approach uh, race as a biocultural construct in my work. So when I say it um, spans the um, the social to the biological. I want to be really clear that I'm not suggesting that there are both kind of, on the one hand, the socially constructed aspects of race, and on the other hand, there's a biological component which is natural and innate, which is what some people argue. I think that's wrong. Um, what I'm referring to is the fact that race has always been, um, and, and racial difference, and this is something that I think is... Um, is discussed in a really, uh, clear way, um, in, uh, Peter Wade's, uh, recent work, um, degrees of, uh, difference, degrees of, um, freedom, um, which is this, uh, this issue that race is already, and racial difference is, uh, has always been, reproduced through the management of, of bodies and, and so here the, the social precedes the biological and not the other way around um so um so i just want to to make that super clear um, and then going back to your your question um i think there's at least two points here one of them is a, a point that Catherine nash has made in her book uh, genetic geographies um which i also draw on in in, in my book which is that um, DNA ancestry tests and in, in the way that they're currently pre- presented seem to convey the message that although we're all human and we're all mixed on some level, um, here are these populations shown in your results, which are the ones that you're most closely related to. Um, and there's this kind of um, idea that because you're more closely uh, genetically related to these particular uh, populations, you should care more about them. Um, and by the way, these results uh, don't summon up images of diverse, multicultural populations. No, they sum up uh, a fantasy vision of uh, these ancestral populations that are more or less ethnically pure. So. Nash argues and I agree that um, DNA ancestry in this form is not a solid basis on which to construct a meaningful anti-racist project because there there are these kind of hierarchies um, that are so av- available within the way that the um, ancestry's results are presented. And the other thing that I encountered during my research was people, um, again, often white people, who embraced the rhetoric that we're all genetically mixed and biological races don't uh, exist according to to genetics because they felt that if everyone was just to accept this um, genetic knowledge, then people, and by this they meant people of colour, would have to just stop banging on about racism. Um, So these genetic discourses that reinforce biological equality become a way of silencing and ge- delegitimizing the real violence and inequalities that are still perpetuated by structural forms of racism. And this same logic was used in Brazil during the debates around university quotas to cast out on uh, either the legitimacy of uh, black Brazilians' claims about racism and inequality, um, or the very claims that uh, any quotas policy uh, could ever work. So they... they um, it was used in a way to suggest that uh, that quotas would inevitably fail because it was simply impossible to come up with an objective way of defining who the beneficiary should be. Because even if someone looked black, then but genetically, um, you might find that they were. Uh, completely mixed or even, you know, had more European ancestry um, than African ancestry. So this was a tactic used to confuse and and kind of delay um, uh, uh, public policies that aimed at repairing um, these uh, social inequalities. So I think um, for that reason, Personally, I, I rarely go to that place of being like, look at genetics, because this will explain how we're all the same. And therefore, no one needs to be racist. I think it's it's quite a weak um, argument, to be honest.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to your to your point of the the title of the, of the book, Permanent Markers, um, the, the, the permanent marker, I think you're arguing is that it's like slavery and colonialism. Like the, those are, exactly, the yeah. are defining. Yeah. Is that, is that is that right?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Precisely, it's it's this um, this idea that even if we're living in a world where supposedly um, a large kind of uh, proportion of of the population recognises the this genetic truth that um, you know that races don't exist, we're still compelled to look to DNA ancestry tests and try and um, you know try and scrutinize our own um, ethnic and uh, racial makeup through through this lens of genetic ancestry and the I think the reason that is is because we're still dealing or rather not dealing with the with the legacies of uh, slavery and colonialism so as you said the, the permanent markers that I'm referring to are, are really the the way that those experiences have have marked us as societies that we're still grappling with
1: mm-hmm. yes exactly um, so the last question I have I guess about that pertains to the book is you know I had to ask this question about kind of the nefarious uses of people's results and if that ever came up and I've, I've talked to people you know myself just people I know about these ancestry tests. And they always bring up this question of well, what are they going to do with the results? And should I do these these tests? Because what if they take the results and do something, you know, against my own interest with them? And many of the people I'm talking to are African Americans. And so, you know, there's this, you know, history of, you know, experience with surveillance and and racism. Um, but other people could have that, you know, that, that perspective as well, and so I just wondered if this ever came up throughout the research or with any of your interlocutors when you were looking into these ancestry tests.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, and this is this is something that um, researchers like Dorothy Roberts and uh, Dwayne Full Wiley, uh, among others, have written about in really compelling ways. Um, in particular, in the United States, when I was looking for participants in my research, um, I would um, ask people that I met through my field work whether they'd taken or thought about taking a DNA test. And I did come across a lot of um African Americans who who had the stance that you mentioned that they um they were curious but they were at the same time wary of um of what the results might be or what the data might be used for. And I think um that there's with good reason to be honest. Um so I didn't really address this uh, directly in the book because um, the people that had that that positioning um, had not taken a, ta- a DNA test, so I didn't end up <laughs> interviewing them um, for the for the project. But um, on the other hand, I did um, the people that I that I did end up meeting and, and interviewing um, in terms of African American um, DNA test takers. People who'd taken a lot of DNA tests um, were often genealogists, and they tended to be of an older generation, um, often middle class, quite comfortably off. Um, so possibly uh, the risks felt more um, remote for them. Um, and I think it's also interesting to to point out that. Um, the majority, as far as I can tell, of people who take DNA ancestry tests are um, white and Euro-descendant um, people, Americans and, and probably Europeans. It's hard to get uh, solid numbers on this because um, companies don't tend to divulge that kind of – or perhaps they don't collect that kind of data. Who knows? But they you know, they don't divulge that anyway. Um, and I think definitely um, when you talk to um, – white and euro descendant people this is usually quite far from their preoccupations <laughs> so this is uh, this is also the the customer base that has made these uh, companies so successful so i think um there's yeah it's, it's interesting um to see that the the kind of power that these companies have um thrives on the fact that um White people who don't have these same concerns of racism and surveillance are very happy to, um, to give their, their data. And, and what is often said among people who, um, who study uh, DNA testing is that um, even though you think you're paying for a service, really, you're giving away your DNA. And that's what companies make such a lot of money on. They're not making the money on um, the price of the DNA test. They're, they're, they're monetizing your data collectively. Um, and uh, with regards to uh, Brazil, again, um, as I mentioned, commercial DNA ancestry testing has only recently uh, taken off, and so far I haven't seen much critical engagement with this aspect about um, about privacy and the, the ethics of. of of these um, industries. And I think at minimum there should be pressure put on companies um, to be transparent about their privacy protocols, how their data are used, who has access to them, how they plan to protect customers' privacy in the face of possible law enforcement requests. Um, This is still, even though there's been some efforts to have companies make um, transparency declarations about those kinds of things in the United States, It's not always clear, for example, what what companies would do if approached uh, with a warrant from a law enforcement agency. Um, And also, even if they have those protocols, there's nothing to stop um, law enforcement agents from simply submitting a DNA sample and logging on as a regular customer. There's no way of telling um, how often that happens or what's being done um, with Uh, you know with that kind of access and obviously they wouldn't get access to the entire database by doing that but they would be able to access kind of a pool of um, I guess suspects Um, so this is definitely um, something that's quite difficult to get a purchase on the on the um, magnitude of risk here or or really to get a sense of what are the possibilities for for what might happen to um, to your data in future.
1: Hmm. Wow. Thank you for that uh, that enlightening answer about the about those tests. Um, So my last question is for you. And so now that Permanent Markers is out into the world, what projects are you currently working on or do you have on the horizon that you're thinking about?
0: Yeah, thank you. So um, since finishing the book, I've been working on a a new project um, about uh, representations of um, skin color through art and science in the context of uh, contemporary anti-racist movements in Mexico. Um, really lucky to have uh, funding for this from the British Academy, and um, the idea for this project uh, came from from when I was doing my um, PhD research, and I found that um, in places like. Brazil, um, when I spoke to Afro-Brazilian activists about uh, the possibility of using DNA testing as a, a kind of anti-racist tool, um, they were not that excited about it because they said that um, color and not ancestry was the real issue when thinking about racism and in terms of tackling people's uh, perceptions of, um, of racial difference and, and, uh, and behaviors of discrimination. Um, and at the time that I was doing my PhD, uh, the findings of the project on ethnicity and race in Latin America, or Berla, uh, uh, which is led by Edward. Uh, Edward Tellez at uh, Princeton had just been published in the book uh, Pigmentocracies um, and they used uh, this colour palette as a way of trying to uh, gather data about the way people are racialized and how this correlates with patterns of socioeconomic inequality in uh, Latin American countries that have historically denied the existence or importance of racism based on the claim that everyone is racially mixed and I noticed that the colour palette has really taken off in Mexico since um, pigmentocracies was was published it's been used in a number of government and research surveys about intergenerational mobility and it seems to have been quite influential in terms of sparking uh, national debates about racism So, what I'm interested in is understanding how these visual technologies are constructed and what is the work that they do uh, discursively in terms of visibilizing uh, racism relating to skin color. Um, So, from a position of working on how racial differences perceived as residing uh, in the body, in our DNA, and now moving on to looking at how racial difference is constructed on the surface of the body in mestizo
1: societies. Hmm. We will look out for that. So that sounds um, like a great uh, bridge from one project to the next. And so good luck on that, on that research that you're currently under underway um, in doing in Mexico. Thank you. Um, Great. So I have been speaking to Dr. Sarah Abel, the author of the book Permanent Markers, Race, Ancestry, and the Body After the Genome, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Thank you so much for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast.